The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. You know, Jackie, we haven't talked about pipelines in a long time, and there's a lot of pipeline news underneath all the COVID news and everything else that's going on in the world. There sure is, right? We're sitting here May 6th and hearing that maybe Line 5 mm-hmm. is at threat of being shut down here next week. Yeah, that's a line that winds its way back up into central Canada and supplies a large part of Ontario and Quebec. So the implications of that, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, this Enbridge Line 5, is that if it were to be shut down, we'd see about half the amount of crude oil going to Ontario that does today. It would also affect some U.S. refiners as well, where they mm-hmm. would be you know, getting half the crude oil that they normally get. It would have implications for Western Canada, potentially, because you know the system is very tight. Yes, we have some crude by rail capacity that we're not using today, but if we lose that demand from the Enbridge mainline, it may mean Mm -hmm. uh, wider price discounts here in Western Canada because we're going to start to have issues with too much oil and not enough places to put the oil. We've lived through that many, many times. We've lived through that many (laughs) times, but uh, the refiners and those who consume the fuels that come out of the refineries have not experienced shortages or price increases as a consequence of pipelines being shut off outright, which is what they're looking at potentially doing. It's going to hurt a lot of people. So that's why I'm hopeful we'll find some resolution here. You know, it's going to hurt consumers, hurt refiners in the U.S. and Canada, Mm -hmm. Western Canadian crude oil producers, maybe even somewhat North Dakota crude oil producers that depend on the Enbridge mainline as well. So lots and lots of parties involved. So we'll be following that. I also wanted to bring to your attention another very important thing around pipelines that people aren't as aware is we're going to be entering into a a very big hearing here starting on May 19th, and that is this Enbridge mainline, which is the pipeline that moves 70% of the crude oil out of Western Canada. Enbridge would like to contract that. Up until now, it's been open access for all for the last 70 years. Big guys, little guys, anybody can get into it. Yes, every month, everyone has equal opportunity to try Mm -hmm. to nominate if they want to ship on that. So this is a massive change for Western Canada. I've been quite involved in it. I'm working with EPAC and um, part of the group that's opposed, as well as many other producers Mm -hmm. in Western Canada. So watch for that. This hearing is scheduled to take over five weeks, just the oral cross-examination. Then there's going to be oral final arguments. So this will extend into probably July, and I think is one of the biggest hearings in my career. I mean, behind the scenes, it's really consequential to those on the outside. It's very dry and even goes under the radar, but it is hugely consequential. You'll keep us posted because I know you're actively involved. But today, we're more interested actually in what flows through the pipelines, especially the finished products like diesel, gasoline, and so on that are blended with other things and ultimately end up behind the ignition key. And so we are delighted today to have David Schick, Vice President Western Canada from the Canadian Fuels Association. So welcome, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, maybe tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the Canadian Fuels Association. Sure. Thanks very much. Well, the Canadian Fuels Association represents all the refiners and marketers in Canada. We supply about 95% of the fuel that uh, reaches the consumer. 
for me, I've been in the downstream business for over 30 years, primarily with Chevron, and then a couple of years with Parkland, who bought Chevron's downstream assets in 2017, and worked in a lot of different roles. And how I ended up working with the Fuels Association was sort of serendipity. BC launched in 2007 their low-carbon fuel policy, working with California, and Chevron was a big player in California. And I was working with large diesel fuel customers who needed to understand what it meant to their business. And so there wasn't anybody else to work on it. So I started working on government relations, policy engagements, and working with my Chevron California colleagues for compliance strategies and business opportunities and policy development. And uh, CFA was a great opportunity for me to learn from the expertise of the other people in the industry because this is a complex space. And 14 years later now, this is what I'm doing with the Fuels Association. Now, it said on your website you represent members that produce crude oil-based transportation fuels. But what about all these emerging fuels? You know, over the last 10 years, because of these policies, the definition of consumer fuels is growing. We have things like biofuels, the use of electricity and electric cars, natural gas vehicles. Now we're talking about hydrogen. Is that part of what you represent as well? Absolutely. The world's changing. Historically, the biofuels and petroleum fuels kind of existed in separate silos. And today, those are coming together in really significant ways. Our members produce a really significant amount of the biofuels that are available in Canada. Companies like Suncor produce a lot of ethanol, and most of our members have a play in different types of biofuels. So the energy systems are becoming more consolidated, and all of those things that you listed, electricity, biofuels, natural gas, are all going to be really critical to the future of transportation fuels. And our members have recognized this and understand that we need to move to a lower carbon future. And late last year, we put out our vision of a driving to 2050, and that outlines how all these different fuels will play into the mix of our transportation future, and it's built on four pillars. We have to make sure that we're providing more low-carbon fuels, improving vehicle efficiency, rethinking mobility, which we're all doing in the middle of this pandemic because we're not moving around as much. I'm sure both of you are not flying around like you used to, for sure, and we've spent a lot of Mm -hmm. time doing that. So mobility is different. And we need a stable policy environment. Well, let's pick up on that. Mobility is different. And let's take the pandemic out. (laughs) Hard to do that. But anyway, let's take the pandemic out of the equation or look at it on the eve of the pandemic. Can you give us a sense of the top line mobility use of fuels? Was that increasing, decreasing? Like, what were Canadian habits in terms of mobility? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is, in terms of our fuels, the amount of gasoline is going down over time, stable and kind of fading. Diesel fuel, though, and moving products around, that hasn't changed. And that element, I think, is a really key concept in this discussion is that things like personal mobility, which people tend to focus on, the electrification of systems, has got a lot of potential in urban environments. But harder to decarbonize sectors, rail, aviation, marine, long-haul transportation are going to need a dense portable fuels for a long period of time. They don't lend themselves well to electrification. So we're seeing a change in the mix as mobility changes and technology improves and we don't need to travel as much for individuals, but the products for certain aspects and sectors of our business are uh, maintaining strength. And I think that this is a really key conversation is around the jurisdictional differences we have in Canada urban versus rural, different provinces have different capabilities, and all of those things will mean that different places have different ways of providing a resilient energy system, and they're going to be different. Okay, well, we'll get back to diesel because that is an area, as you say, that's growing, and maybe there's opportunities for 
diesel to become cleaner over time as we use biofuels. But before we get to that, I want to ask you about the new government policies that have come out. The Liberal government federally has put out significant changes here in terms of the goals. They want to see a 40 to 45 percent reduction in Canada's greenhouse gas emissions compared to 2005. We got the net zero by 2050 and the plan to even legislate milestones all along the way to get there. Now, transportation makes up 25% of Canadian emissions, so this is obviously going to be an area of focus. What is your position on these targets and the Canadian government's plans? They're going to be challenging. They're aspirational. I think it's important that we have targets. One of the things that we see is in a lot of jurisdictions, there's a bit of going after whatever the most stringent targets are in, in other places. And so there's a lot of setting a goal and then working backwards to figure out how you're going to do it. We have challenging goals under the clean fuel regulation on the transportation side. We think are achievable. Uh, we're going to work hard to get to them. But I think that some of these emissions reductions are going to need to come from other sectors. It's notable uh, from an energy systems perspective that a lot of these significant reductions that have occurred are on the utility side. And so depending on where you are in Canada, a lot of jurisdictions have very high renewable content in their electricity generation systems or utilities. And so the opportunities that exist in Canada in some places really aren't as significant as they are when we compare ourselves to the U.S. And so we're going to be challenged to do that, but we're working with all sorts of different innovative and new technologies. I'm really impressed to see what's happening on upstream with the innovation through Clean Resource Innovation Network is somebody I'm involved with. So there's a lot of constructive things going on, but we're going to be challenged to meet targets. They're very ambitious. I mean, getting back to that utility comment, you know, utilities are centralized. In other words, you swap out a coal plant for centralized renewable power, but vehicles are completely decentralized. And so therefore, you have to decarbonize the fuels or, you know, what's combusted or swap out the engines altogether with something new. So can you sort of explain the policies that are driving the substitution of the fuel, say, let's start with combustion engines? One of the biggest things that we've seen in Canada started with renewable fuel standards. So you actually have a percentage requirement to replace conventional hydrocarbons with renewable fuels, but it's percentage-based. And so the Canadian standard is 2% renewable content in diesel, 5% in ethanol. That's been in place for over 10 years. But the things that really start to facilitate change that we've seen in British Columbia is a low-carbon fuel requirement. And that's where the clean fuel regulation is from a Canadian perspective. And that becomes a qualitative measurement in terms of carbon intensity. So how much carbon is emitted by for the amount of energy you produce? And so when you start to ratchet that back, it starts to dramatically change the composition of your energy mix. And so that's where mm -hmm. things like low-carbon liquids, but also electricity, depending on how it's generated, and hydrogen right. come into focus. So just to clarify here... The idea is to take the existing hydrocarbon, say, call it diesel, okay, and dilute it like a blood thinner. I like to think of it in the veins, right, <laughs> with a, a much lower carbon intensity fuel, say, a biofuel, a biodiesel. And therefore, the overall combustions that come out of the tailpipe are less as a consequence. Exactly right. And there's some really interesting ways of doing that. Well, one of the things I'm keen on is using biogenic feedstocks in existing refinery structures. So taking today, and Parkland Fuels and Burnaby is an example, they've commercialized of taking canola and tallow oil and putting it in with the crude, and then that finished product has a lower carbon intensity. 
and we could also have separate facilities to produce renewable diesel. There's a distinction on the diesel side between biodiesel and renewable diesel. And why that's important is renewable diesel is produced from biogenic feedstock, but using traditional refining process. And it doesn't have any limitations on how much you can use as a percentage. Whereas biodiesel is actually a particular product that's going to be important, but it's got limitations in how much you can use. So the point is that all of these innovations are coming into play now. They're getting commercialized. And uh, we see a lot of opportunity for what we think from the Fuels Association is taking our existing infrastructure and adapting it to meet these lower carbon targets, which means lower cost abatement for getting to your environmental goals and also less disruption to the consumer because the fleets don't have to change. It's really exciting. I mean, it's hard to see how we can achieve these goals so quickly by changing out the whole fleet in 10 years. But if we can change out the fuels, and, you know, this is really exciting, the fact that we could use our existing refineries to create drop-in fuels because the problem with the biofuels so far, like ethanol, is there's a limit to how much we can use. We're here with co-processing. You can, uh, in theory, replace everything with feedstocks that are coming through the refinery that are coming from, you know, not petroleum-based, but from foods or other waste materials. What I think is really cool about that, Jackie, is that in Canada, we have a tremendous opportunity because of the biomass that we have. So agricultural residues, forest residues, burgeoning technologies there to convert those into liquid, and those liquid fuels can be used in the refinery. And they have really low carbon intensities because they emit methane into the atmosphere when they degrade. And so if we can turn those around and start using those types of products with the really major amounts of organizational capability and engineering expertise we have in the oil and gas sector, it's a powerful recipe, not just for meeting the environmental goals within Canada, but supplying these products and the expertise to make those products around the world. Do we have to temper our excitement a little bit here because of the price inflation that we're seeing in all the way from forestry, agriculture, even to the metal commodities and so on, but especially the agricultural ones? And as you draw more demand on the bio-related supply chains, aren't the prices going to go up? And we've seen that in the past, you know, I remember from 15 years ago when this was a big problem. Yeah, you're right. I'm concerned about, I mean, the cost is another thing that we need to, it's fundamental. Having the technical capability to do these things and then understanding the cost and how it affects the consumers and, you know, what their preferences are going to be is a big part of the equation for us. And I think cost is, not often discussed because these targets are aspirational, but costs are really a concern. And this is what I view as the dichotomy between policy and politics. So the policy and everybody wants to get to lower carbon fuels or a lower carbon world, but how do you do that in such a way that doesn't create such an expense for the consumer that it's not tolerable Mm -hmm. for them? I want to talk a little bit about these policies, specifically BC's experience. Now we're talking about a Canadian-wide clean fuel standard, but we really should learn from the last 10 years what's happened in B.C. because they've had one in the province. And generally, have these policies worked to reduce the emissions? And importantly, have they worked to create investment in Canada to make these fuels, or are we just dependent on imports? Great questions, yeah. Well, I think in B.C. they have the carbon tax, which is pretty significant here, and also the low-carbon fuel requirement, which has been in place for 10 years. They have reduced the carbon intensity of fuels, avoided tons. In 2019, it was 1.9 million tons, which is pretty significant when you think about the uh, target for the clean fuel regulation nationally is 20 million tons in 2030. 
The challenge is in BC is that the industrial base is relatively small, and BC's been quite creative in coming up with ways to, through the policy structures, to get abatement starting to happen here. But to date, a lot of these products have come in from around the world, and the big source of abatement cost or abatement is using renewable diesel, which comes in from Singapore and the Nordic countries and has for over 10 years. It's expensive, globally short of supply. But of interest, the, those policies have led to about a 9% use of bio-based diesel in D.C. in 2019, and the target is to get to 40%. So government is now supporting a really aggressive opportunities for co-processing and renewable diesel production in D.C., and so they have plans to start getting that in place. But it's taken time. But it's the low-carbon fuel requirements that have actually changed the fuel composition mm-hmm. rather than the carbon tax. These targets have really only kind of been difficult to meet in the last four or five years. So I guess there's time there for people to mm-hmm. recognize that. And the other important thing is the price signal. The BC low-carbon fuel standard is trading as high as $400 a ton. That's kind of an amazing number. But we've talked about clean fuel standards in the past. They don't apply to all of the fuel, just a portion of it. What is driving that price so high? It's a shortage of these low-carbon intensity products. And that's what presents the opportunity is to make these products in Canada because we have a lot of the pieces, a lot of the foundational elements of it. And it's a relatively small market in BC. So the, the amount of available credit to be able to support meeting the compliance targets are limited. And it gets back to this renewable diesel. You're bringing it in from Singapore or bringing it in from the Gulf Coast and starting to produce these products in British Columbia now. But global demand is really a significant factor in that because the Americans are going this direction. Washington State just announced that they're putting in a low-carbon standard, and California draws a lot of these products in. Once we expand that to the Canadian market as a whole and the U.S. market, there's going to be a period of time where there's going to be a lot of pressure on trying to make sure we have enough products to meet the compliance obligations in these different areas. The demand picture looks only up and up, but back to the feedstock cost going up. If you can get $400 a ton for offsetting carbon, you know, it can mean that you can pay more for your feedstocks possibly as well. It's possible, but ultimately somebody has to pay and it has to trickle all the way down the supply chain to the consumer. Under the BC experience, the clean fuel standard, has it only motivated us to import biofuels and hopefully start building our own facilities to do that? Or have we actually seen some diversification into other lower carbon fuels like renewable natural gas, electricity, or hydrogen? Has there really been a lot of growth because of this policy in those alternatives? Not so far. And it's going to be the same on the federal level, too. I think that we'll see that the renewable fuels will be kind of the starting point, and then it'll expand into these other opportunities that have become more aware. We're doing a webinar later today for our refiners on hydrogen and understanding what that means. As a refiner, we produce hydrogen. We can use hydrogen to make different feedstocks that are lower carbon intensity. We can sell it to the market. So hydrogen has potential in our industry. But those are relatively new opportunities. So renewables have been the focus. Electrification in BC has been quite significant under different policy structures. We're close to 10% of new light-duty vehicles being electric vehicles in BC for new sales. So it's happening in that space here. So are you classifying electricity as well in your industry association as a transportation fuel? Yeah, we are. So that's under your purview. And do you influence lobby, I don't know, whatever the word is, on fuel taxes and road taxes and things like that? 
Yeah, well, it's a critical part of the equation, uh, Peter. I think that people lose the fact that from a national basis, it's about $28 billion a year that you get from gasoline and road taxes across the country. How are we going to replace that? So when you electrify the fleet, if yeah. there's no compensating element to that, it becomes a distortion. And I think that it's how you measure carbon intensity or how you look at different modes of transportation. There needs to be some equalization of understanding that there's costs or revenues that are driven out of these policies that need to be replaced somehow. And that's part of the transparency to the consumer as well. That's yeah. I think is quite important. Yeah, well, it's interesting that Saskatchewan, and I know there's politics involved here, introduced sort of a road tax on electric vehicles. But really, it's probably a harbinger of things to come, because I know a few U.S. states have started doing the same, right? Absolutely. And, and actually, I think it gets to uh, mobility or road taxes, because you're going to have a whole bunch of different fleets. So how do you tax them? And so at some point, that's the way you'll need to do it. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a very modest amount, 150 bucks. But the smart thing that they've done, in my opinion, is they signal to the market and set up a structure to allow that, to put it in place, and then to allow that to grow as it needs to replace revenues from a changing fuel mix. And so we can't have the consumer believe that these alternatives are going to be somehow more free or not taxed over time, because I think it's likely that that's how it's yeah, going to we have play to, out. we have to fix the pothole somehow. <laughs> exactly. Let's quickly talk about your future vision. You mentioned that you have a driving to 2050 plan. Tell us a little bit about that. If we were to arrive in 2050... How different would transportation fuels in Canada look, do you think? Well, I think it's going to have a lot of uh, the different dimensions that we described earlier on. I think for what will be needed is we'll need to have fit-for-purpose fuels that provide resilient energy sources to consumers. And that's going to be a complex undertaking because today we have a very resilient system where we have for instance, the electricity system is backed up by diesel generation. And so all of those dynamics around resilient systems are going to need to be in place. What will need to happen is we'll start to see hybridization in different ways. And so in 2040 or 2050, one of the things is renewable electricity production. You can't store it very well today. But by then, or in 2040, we may have opportunities to convert that intermittent renewable electricity into hydrogen production that can be of storage mechanism. Low-carbon liquids will be part of the mix, and I think they'll be a composition of a variety of different things. Hydrocarbons made from much lower carbon intensity processes, renewables made from all kinds of biomass. I think that the opportunities there are pretty endless as that technology evolves. A really interesting project here in British Columbia is taking the municipal sewage waste, which has no value, but can be converted into a liquid mm-hmm. that can be put into the uh, liquid fuel mix. So there's going to be a spectrum of things. What is important is how do we maintain that cost and a resilient system that can be reliable and meet consumer expectations? Yeah, I love that, the circular economy stuff where we use our waste products to make these sorts of renewable fuels. But picking up on that reliable word, which means sort of reliable supply chain, what advantages do you see Canada having? I mean, I guess it's sort of a rhetorical question. Obviously, we have so much biomass. How do you see it all developing out over the course of the next couple of decades? Well, I think that we're going to need to leverage uh, the capabilities that we have in Canada. I think that around the engineering capability, we make an energy products out of really lousy stuff, and we're very good at it at scale. And I think that it's going to take a collaboration and an understanding that the world is changing. 
And I think that the economic drivers need to come into play. And, and one of the initiatives that I'm quite keen on is something that we're doing here at the BC Business Council in conjunction with their members. It's something called the Low Carbon Industrial Strategy, where recognizing the world is going to want lower carbon resources and lower carbon expertise, that the products we produce, not just energy, but our forestry and our mining, our aluminum, produced at lower carbon ways, will create economic incentives because there'll be a higher value to those products. Mm-hmm. So as our systems evolve, I think that that's a smart approach is to take a constructive way to looking to the economic value. There's a tendency, Peter, to look for compliance in all of these policies. I think that limits and underestimates the capability of Canada to move in the direction. But it's going to be, I think, very important that we take measured steps and mm-hmm. thoughtful compliance pathways rather than just looking at the endpoint and then just yeah. assuming we're going to get there somehow. That's highly problematic. Yeah, it is problematic because, you know, this notion of uh, providing the incentives to do it here, to do it right, the word compliance that you used, which leads us to the ESG. You know, my concern is that the policies lead to more importation from parts of the world where we don't really know what's going on, where there's very little ESG, especially the S and the G. Frankly, I'm not on board with importing more biofuels from somewhere that's slashing rainforests uh, just because it's lower cost. How do we do that? The really critical thing is that we use a life cycle analysis approach to assess the impact of using these different products. And for instance, early on, these renewable diesel products coming out of Singapore were largely palm and not a lot of control over that, uh, where the palm was coming from. But by using a life cycle analysis approach, actually visiting those places from the people that are regulating within the receiving jurisdiction, you make sure that it meets the standards that you expect because the carbon intensity that's lasting a rainforest is extremely high, actually proven out to be higher than petroleum products. That doesn't work. There needs to be rigor on that end, and it needs to be equitably applied across the world so that we're not getting in a position where, in effect, doing what we did with manufacturing is saying, well, this manufacturing negative things are really bad, so we move it to another jurisdiction, and then we lose that economic opportunity. Have to be rigor in terms of how we manage the assessment of these different alternatives so that they're fair and that we don't undermine our domestic capabilities to produce these fuels. David, your comments at the beginning and some of these comments got me thinking about Canada's potential here. If you think about it, If we could drive a lot of our petroleum production to net zero on the direct emissions from upstream, then we would start to process that with a bunch of biofeedstock in our refineries and upgraders that may be negative emissions because we're taking waste that would have added methane to the atmosphere, but by capturing that waste and putting it into the petroleum feedstock, mixing it together, we could almost get a net zero product on all the emissions because we could offset some of the petroleum emissions with these negative emissions feedstocks. Anyway, we have this huge refining infrastructure in Western Canada. If we started to co-process this with our very low-carbon petroleum, we could create a massive export business here where we have a very differentiated product. You know, it's really exciting to think about using the assets we have, both the natural resources and the existing refining infrastructure. I agree completely. And the other addition to that is CCUS, which we start to capture some of this carbon, it pushes us even further into the opportunity mm-hmm. of having uh, these net zero opportunities. And that's exactly what I think, Jackie. I think that we need to be confident that what we're doing or what we can achieve is there. 
understand that we need to change and move forward from that platform. And I think it's what a lot of people don't understand that became very apparent to me on the downstream side is this completely reliable system of having fuels and gas stations all the time, every day. Nobody ever thinks about that. So when you add the complexity to that supply chain, people upstream and downstream, it's a very hard job to make that work every day, all the time. There's a kind of a reluctance to move into all of these new areas of complexity, but I think it's necessary and the economic opportunity is there just as you described. And again, it's not just a physical product. We learn to do this and then we share that expertise that services around the world, I think is a really significant opportunity for us. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, thank you very much, David. This has been really fascinating, and thanks for giving us that vision of what maybe 2050 could look like. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming, David. Have a great day. And thanks to our audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.